0: Hello, and welcome to the MC podcast. My guest today is Mike Kennedy from Arteos Global. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bart. We've had a string of guests on the podcast who have got different angles when it comes to the Institute of Munitions Clearance and Search Engineers responsibilities. On the global stage, Mike, your company has a really interesting set of responsibilities and also a very interesting set of skill sets. So talk us a little bit, first and foremost, about what Artios Global is about. I think we, we deliver a range of services,
1: predominantly for the UK government, large NGOs, some commercial companies, uh, and the United Nations, particularly UN Mine Action Service. Those are both involved in the implementation of some kind of training capacity development projects, and we've also worked in the development of some international standards through the Geneva International Centre for Humanitarian Demining and also provided them some complimentary good practice guides when it comes to, that, in particular, IED clearance activities.
0: So your organization has both a consultancy, advisory, and practical application across some of the spheres that MC works in. We're going to take a few steps back to the beginning of your career. Now, like a lot of people here, you've got some background working overseas in hostile environments. What was your first insight into working into munitions and search clearance?
1: Years back, when I joined the Royal Engineers and commissioned, I was posted to 33 Engineer Regiment as a troop commander, and at that time completed the what was called the ESO1 Advanced EOD course and deployed first to Belize and did some range clearance work out there, and then to Afghanistan on Op Herak 10 uh, as a, as a BDO in charge of a small team conducting conventional munition disposal. At that time, Afghanistan, the main threat really was from IEDs and we did a we did some top-up training to enable us to destroy IEDs in place. But really, that was very much a, an expedient method at the time that wasn't widely used on that operational tour for a variety of reasons. When I came back from that deployment in 2009, I then completed what was called, at that time, the Joint Service IDD course, and, and went to Northern Ireland, and that was my first real experience of, of dealing with IDs and that was a seven-month period in 2010, which saw a pretty big increase in the use of IDs by distant Republicans across Northern Ireland, and I did was involved in the response to a number of pretty significant incidences, which was interesting and gave me some quite, quite of experience at the time. And then that year I went and did the what was that time called the High Threat ID course, which is a course that enables you to operate in what's termed a high threat environment. And when you're operating in those environments to actually conduct full render safe procedures effectively of IDs, not just destroying them in situ. And then I deployed back to Afghanistan in 2011 on my first tour as a high threat operator, which was a busy time. That's all, yeah. That, that saw a kind of pretty significant increase in IDs. Unfortunately, Alperic, 13, 14 was a pretty tough time. That unfortunately saw quite a lot of high number of casualties amongst EOD and search practitioners who we were in theatre on those tours. Came back, this is now progressing to senior captain level. Spent some time as a regimental ops captain at 33, regimental ops officer. I went back to Afghanistan for my final tour in 2013 on Op and that was it. And I was exhausted, so I left the army. <laughs> decided that I'd do something completely different. Um, but the the kind of appeal to get back into the the sector was 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 pretty great at the time. So mo- mostly because of then what was happening back in Iraq with, with, with um, ISIS. So I went and worked for a, a charity called Danish Church Aid on their Syria response. Unfortunately, that. Got, had some funding issues at the end or the start of 2016 and I went then to work for a commercial company in Iraq who we were the first commercial company to conduct some other companies have been done some assessment but they were the first to conduct operational survey and clearance of ID contamination in, in built up areas in Iraq starting in Adi we then moved to Fallujah I was the operations manager at the time and then the, the program spiraled, more people came on board, the new project was set up in the north, Mosul was liberated, and they conducted survey clearance there. That that kind of project remains the, to this very day. So that, that really set the scene. And once I finished my commercial work in Iraq at the end of 2017, RTS was established and we really got going in the start of 2018 since then, I've been back all to interesting places across the world, Afghanistan multiple times, including since, including since the events of August 2021, which is now an interesting uh, place to work for various reasons. Yeah, and I've worked across Africa, back to Iraq multiple times and some places in Europe now, including Ukraine.
0: So what we're going to do is we're going to unpick some of the different theatres that you've recently operated in. But before we do that, I was going to ask you some questions about the way the organizations that you've experienced have run and the impact that regularization and certification in this sector has changed. So, when you started out, you've got this sort of the genesis of a military career, which a lot of people in the munitions and search clearance sector have. So, most people who have come from a British Army background or from a foreign military background will understand the range of the courses that you've attended. But in outline, let's just see if I can summarize this. You effectively train on conventional munitions disposal at the start of your courses. And this is the the munitions that you're most likely to encounter in training environments and post-conflict environments, which have happened to finish a long time ago. So then you talk about this particular course, which I know some of the audience won't necessarily be clear about, the High Threat Course, which works, which is a course which operates out of the British Army system. Now, would you just be able to explain for some of the audience that aren't necessarily from the British sector, what that, what that qualification's about and why that came about?
1: That qualification is about being able to operate in a high threat environment and having essentially the knowledge, skills and experience and I suppose the attitudes, if you, if you like, to be able to work in an environment where you are being deliberately and actively targeted by a belligerent. So they are looking at the actions that you're conducting and, and essentially keen to exploit vulnerabilities. There's other definitions where you're routinely encountering vehicle born IDs, RCIDs, IDs, and complex victim-operated IDs, and then having the experience to render them safe. So it's a very useful course. It's very specific to the British Army, and most other militaries don't necessarily work in the same sort
0: of way, of the same sort of kind of doctrine and policies. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons I'm working towards that definition from you is that how is it possible then when you move from a service background from multiple militaries and you're coming together in international environments, how in the past have you witnessed people understanding what each other's capabilities are and have you managed to overcome the idea of not necessarily having the same standards across different militaries and different uh, non-military organizations?
1: I think with a lot of disparity, I think often it doesn't work particularly well without effort applied and a realization that different organizations, the humanitarian mine action sector works differently from the military and it's, it's not a military activity. It may look to people in the military that these people are going out and they're working in war zones or in, in environments where conflict has only just ended and maybe there is a, a certain level of continued violence in that country that they think if they were there, they would be operating in a very much a military context. But as a civilian Either NGO or commercial company conducting humanitarian management, you don't have the, you don't have you know necessarily the legal remit, nor the the resources to operate in a, in that manner. And if you tried to, as in what I talk about the manner, as in whenever you would be actively countering another armed organization in a confrontational manner, and if you were to fall into that trap, if you like, you would come off worse for wear. You don't have the resource, and nor do you have the remit, and that's the most important. The the second aspect is the most important aspect, and you're there under a humanitarian remit, operating under humanitarian principles. What's all very confusing, though, is that you've got humanitarian mine action blue apron type stuff, and then you've also got the UN and UN Mine Action Service operating in places like Mali, conducting training, mentoring, capacity development of U.S. peacekeeping, military EOD, counter id units, Mm -hmm. which do operate in a non-permissive environment, I do need to worry about being actively targeted. So you hear this term mass, if you like, and people get confused and think that the humanitarian mine action and the military peacekeeping operations are are one and the same, and and they're not. No doubt areas of grey exist and people could work through those. But by and large, there's there's pretty clear separation between the two.
0: The problem that you're uh, unpicking for me is that um, transition that occurs between a lot of um, people who work in the munitions search and clearance sector who have come from a military background, not just in the British military but other militaries, and then they transition into a role which crosses the boundary of working in a government organisation into a non-governmental organisation. So. Is this really the point where you feel like there's the most friction between working out what professional experience and capabilities people have and how they can be applied in an organization? Or do you feel like that's already been overcome and lots of people have informal standards that they work to?
1: Oh, no, uh, they're they're pretty formal standards, both international mine action standards, national standards, laws. For Ukraine, for example, has got pretty strong mine action law.
0: So do you think most people that are operating are actually operating within the remit of the IMAS qualifications or other regulations that they've taken on?
1: Uh, yeah, by and large in the sector I do, yeah. And those could be... So the the, key, the, the the real important one, if you like, the most important one is the national standards and the, and the laws of the country in which you're operating. They should all um, be in compliance and based on international mine action standards. And I think by and large... These organizations do the worst offenders are by and large individuals who just left the army. And maybe it's not just this sector, but other sectors where they think that they can just because often there's a view of lobby so much more current than all these people who left 20 years ago. Whereas actually the people who left 20 years ago have developed a absolute breadth of experience because they have been conducting operations almost continually in all sorts of places all around the world, either managing those operations or actually conducting them at the kind of field level. Those people, and I think there's often a bit of friction between people who assume that the military experience brings value over and above what it does in the humanitarian Or even the UN peacekeeping context. Yeah. I'm not Um, saying it for one second that it doesn't. And I think there are particular examples where there was a gap in, in, and the one that I have encountered was when IEDs became so prolific in their use through ISIS in the Middle East, in in Syria, and, and, and most recently in Afghanistan, where we've done a lot of work. With the UN, Halo Trust, and developing national capacity in Afghanistan to deal with ID's, because since August 2021, there's much
0: more access into areas that are heavily contaminated with ID's in that country. To understand that, are you saying that although that the regime change has created a huge range of problems for the population of Afghanistan, one of the things that has changed is, is that it has enabled organisations to reach areas that they haven't been able to to in the past because the Taliban now run everything and there's places you can get to.
1: Yeah. I think the, the reality of the situation is that organizations can now access, you know, 1990, a lot of areas where there was you know, really heavy fighting, where there's a lot of ID contamination and the population are really badly affected by it. Though that access now is much better than it has been. I've been back to Afghanistan every year, apart from 2021 since about 2017, Mm -hmm. uh, on multiple different trips. And the access that that the teams have now is is much better. So that's just the reality of the situation there. And the main problem in that country is is IEDs, both IEDs laid by the Taliban regime and and now by ISIS as well.
0: So So without going into technical detail and, and making sure we don't break any boundaries of security for you, What have you noticed specifically in the change from the munitions that you've dealt with in the early parts of your career, the way that they're deployed, and the way that you encounter them now and that your demining teams that you work with and anti-IED, sorry, counter-IED teams work with now? What have you seen change? Has there been significant change? In Iraq, yes, I think
1: that was significant. So they used, as in they, as in ISIS in Iraq, used IEDs as a conventional weapon system. And what mm. I mean by that are your ID belts positioned like defensive minefields, thousands of IDs set eight metres apart, often of a identical or similar design. These were, were manufactured often by enslaved labour using industrial facilities. Wow. So um,
0: these in terms of IEDs, they are still improvised explosive devices, but then deployed as if they're a conventional mine system,
1: yeah. But there's still an ID, so mm. I think it's an ID placed placed in a defensive belt is the best. But following almost mine laying doctrine. But what I would also say is you'd have a, maybe a big belt of IDs laid in front of a series of trenches, the fighting positions linked in with physical terrain obstacles, like just like we would have done in the British Army or, or the Russians are doing at the moment in Ukraine. But back from that, you'd have then IDs in place more like we would have seen in Afghanistan targeting maybe a specific action, like cutting things manually or people walking through a vulnerable point um, or an RC IED at a road junction. Mm.
0: That's a good way of looking at it, and I take it because of the nature of these particular type of structures and tactics you're talking about, the IDs themselves don't have the stability of conventional munitions which are deployed in these minefields. Yeah, or mean what what shelf life are you looking at on them?
1: When it comes to the other types of IDs, particularly in Iraq, what you would often have is maybe a, let's say, a radio controlled ID. That ID has been abandoned for eighteen months. Surrounded by people going about their everyday business, and nobody's no perpetrator is there watching it with the firing device. However, Daesh would routinely put two, maybe three victim operator switches linked to that same ID. That you just imagine I've got one above my head, a smoke alarm. When was it the old nine-volt battery? And that's actually got that's actually active. It's actually looking for is actually looking to sense smoke in a room. Yeah. Just got a pressure plate with two plates and there's no current flowing in that circuit. That that ID could stay viable for a considerable amount of time. You know, wow. if, if you just think about that smoke alarm and, and the biggest factor probably then your environmental degradation, go back to how these devices were put together. This wasn't like two blokes downstairs in their sheds. This was a factory of enslaved labor following quality assurance and quality control procedures, looking at how well their stuff was put together. And these IEDs very much can stay viable for a long period of time. And the accidents that you still see in Iraq that you see today are testament to that.
0: So with such a variety of threats for you and the people that you work with to deal with, I'm going to move forward to talking to you about some of the regularization and the sort of accreditation that you've seen in this sector, specifically because you've been asked to help out in various ways with some of the benchmarking of standards within organizations like the UN. Uh, why do you think, first of all, that you were asked to do that? And why had it been identified as being an important facet of the way the United Nations was running um, some of its operations? So
1: they, we helped... This goes back a while now to to 2018 when we helped develop the ID Disposal International Mine Action Standard, so 0931,
0: and we also developed the the standard for for building clearance. So in a way, could you help me and the audience understand why it was it important that you were given this role by the United Nations? Why do you think they chose you? And what is it about this regularisation, this standardisation became important? So we were doing some work for...
1: Geneva center at that time. And I think we had the experience and the operational currency of bringing IED competencies into the humanitarian sector, relatively recently left the military and I'd had like a couple of years of experience in the humanitarian mine action sector. So I was able to tread the divide between the two. And I think that worked quite well. Why was that important? It goes back to really the the gap that I talked about and the benefit of having some military experience at that time was to deal with this IED problem. And it it, it was valued. And I think people, it made people listen and and say, oh, actually, there, there is a gap here in the international mine action standards. And if we don't address it, it will actually hinder us in being able to achieve our goal, which is to try and help these affected communities. In countries that are now contaminated with IED so it wasn't it that was not a confrontational process for us and I know that you often hear about these confrontations that exist but for that's not what I experienced and the, the working group that we were involved with and the drafting that we did was very well received by and large But the exciting piece of work really was for us was the ID clearance good practice guides. And I think I'm not sure in the statistics now with Ukraine, maybe not, but up until that point, it was the most actively downloaded publication that that the Geneva center had. Uh, And we got into, we got that piece of work just by responding to a competitive tender uh, that they released. And we, we worked with a range of companies, media companies, all for technologies their range and we produce what we think and, and a really good graphic designer and we think what we produce is a, is a guide that's actually going to assist organizations to bridge that gap between kind of policy and action in the field and at that time and i think over those couple of years after the international mine action standards were released for idd that guide served the purpose the other point is that the, the international standard Is about disposal, and ninety-five percent of your work is in trying to search for, so detect and locate IDs. So the good practice guides are important because there there was uh, a gap associated with that. Luckily, the test and evaluation protocol
0: goes with the actual overall standard. I've also encountered some of the feedback about your publication, and it does really sound like it's created a groundswell of very positive movement towards uh, regulating and making sure that people have the correct understanding before they go into environments. But I wanted to ask you about what happens when procedures are written down and when you have a situation which creates a sort of benchmark for people's activities. How do you think organizations can overcome the requirement to still introduce people to topics and not make them so far out of reach that you can't engage? Because you've got personal experience of going to countries and having to go and work with people with almost limited to zero experience and then move them towards a point where they can actively deploy on operations. So how, in your mind, do you think it's... How do organizations overcome that sort of starter, getting people off the ground sort of problem?
1: first large-scale project that we worked on in that regard was probably in Afghanistan in, in 2020 when we worked were the prime and we, we were the sub and we were in kind of charge of our scope of work really was in the training design and delivery of a series of eight courses right from four weeks of search ID search training, a couple of weeks of, of to bring a select few up to team leader level so they could be in charge and lead a search team and then another course so they could do ID disposal we also had courses on uh, an awareness course for kind of high-level organizational managers, a train-the-trainer course, a quality management course, and these p- people who came on the course had very little experience of IEDs, but they had twenty, twenty-five years experience of working in one of the most heavily contaminated countries in terms of conventional landmines, munitions, conventional ordnance, from largely from. The war in afghanistan in the 1980s the soviets what we find worked well was to do a good training needs analysis speak and listen to the people who you were going to be training look try and establish what their current experience is and how that could relate to what you're going to do now because no if it's like being the kid at the back of the classroom isn't it and you sat there in a lesson and you know it already and you're not putting your hand up saying, I know it already, but whenever you would like it to be, uh, you would like at least to be recognized that this, what you're talking about is something that you were, you received from another teacher two years previously. And it, it can become frustrating, I think for people. And there's a real, I think problem whenever international organizations come to a country and they don't have any humility and they don't listen to what people in that country already know and they know about their country and what they've been doing for the last 20 years. So we we took the attitude of, look, we're not starting from scratch. What we're doing is converting, trying to help convert the mine action sector in Afghanistan from conventional ordnance to ID's. And And I think that was an important principle. Uh, behind our work there was obviously then uh, the events of 2021, but we we, we went back actually, so, so we we didn't get there physically at the end of 2021 because of I suppose the, the the security situation immediately after the Taliban returned to power. We did start a remote mentoring package with the instructors that we had trained in 2020, and then we followed that through into 2021. Mm-hmm. And then started going back out there and say, because we had developed this corridor of instructors, we were able to scale that quite quickly with a limited number of internationals. Mm-hmm. And I think that worked really well, but we had the confidence and the donors had the confidence that the quality and the standards of the work would be high because we'd done all that. We'd had a really clear, progressive period in 2020 to do, to deliver these national strikes. They All had a decade plus worth of experience of humanitarian mine action. So lots and lots of conventional munition disposal experience. And so it's, it's very akin, that's very akin to going back to what I described at the start of this, go out, do a tour in conventional munition disposal, do your initial ID qualification, do another ID qualification, build your experience over time. It's actually quite akin akin to that It'd be like say you've got a really ex- experienced conventional mission disposal operator in the British Army that go and do they, they go and do their ID course and then all of a sudden they're they're being treat but they're being treated or recognized that they, they, you know, they've never touched explosives before it wouldn't go down it wouldn't <laughs> be a very receptive way to adult learning would it yeah. and you, you'd probably make more barriers in front of you than you, you broke down so that's always been the type of kind of Learning environment that we've tried to instill. I think it's worked well. We've, we've done that in other places around the world as well.
0: Now, the Institute of Munitions uh, Clearance and Search Engineers came about from a, a slightly more conventional series of conflicts than what some of the members are dealing with now. And one of the reasons why organizations like MC are essential is because they offer governments and non governmental organizations the opportunity to at least see the value of the people that it might be employing now i don't want the i don't want to shy away from controversy in the podcast you're aware of the case of the demining equipment that was sold in iraq that was not fit for purpose now we have organizations like MC, and we have procurement is maybe a little bit tighter but IMC isn't just about regularization what else does it add value to the sector
1: So, for example, we delivered a project in Peru at the start of this year, and that was to deliver IMAS EOD 3 plus training to the Peruvian um, military, predominantly the Air Force. We had students on there from the Navy and the Army as well. And at the end of that, what we were able to do is give those students associate membership of IPSI. So for them, not only have they got that associate membership, but they've got options then to maintain their continual professional development in this field. And I think they've, then got, they've got some confidence and that not just them as in the students, but the, the Peruvian armed forces have got confidence in what their students have received has some
0: merit. You're um, a relatively newer organisation to both MC and also the industry. But you value the membership of MC. What do you think it adds to your organization and for you as individuals as you move and continue to grow in the munitions space?
1: What we would
0: like to say is that
1: it, it provides somewhere that like people that we've trained, mentored, that they can conduct con- continual professional development, that, that they are welcomed almost into uh, an industry body that they can remain engaged with. And I think that brings then more of a collaborative, professional institute that we will all benefit from. So it's about some active MC meetings, getting to, to speak to people face to face. There's a lot of collaboration that can be done
0: from MC globally. In terms of participating in an organization where there's a very active membership, what do you think some of the members actually gain?
1: I think that the members gain as in the membership of individuals such as the students or or individuals that we have mentored and then they've gained their associate membership. I think that they gain currency in, in what's happening around the world. They gain relevance to what's happening in terms of future threats. The organizations that may be looking to employ them in the future can have confidence in them. And I think the organizations, the companies that join, it, it's a, it's an industry body. And I think hopefully it's a, as an active industry body, it means that we've got a collaborative group of companies that are working in this sector that see beyond their own interests, which is a nice working environment. People want to be in a nice working environment. People organizations that are continue loggerheads with each other. That's not necessarily a nice industry to be part of.
0: So like the other podcast contributors, you've talked about this sort of collegiate atmosphere of MC and how it welcomes people in. So with increasing threats of IED in Ukraine and large demining problems there, further conflicts around the world, Tigray and other places like that, unfortunately, the role of MC is not something that's going to go away. But what do you feel for you and your company within the organization? How is things going to change? How is MC going to be of benefit to you? What does it mean to you to be part of MC and these future threats and conflicts?
1: I think it will mean that we, as an organization, ensure that we stay current. And I think it means that we can make sure that what we are doing for our clients and customers is matching industry good practice, it's incorporating a thorough understanding of. The, the latest threats uh, and learning from others as well, I think that's an, that's an important aspect, isn't it? And if you're working in an ecclesiastical environment, you don't have to start with a blank piece of paper every time and you, we all want to we all want to work in that sort of environment where we, you know, we're, we're building on success and I think that that's important to, to us and we, we want to be part of an industry that definitely sees the benefit in a collaborative approach. And most of the a lot of the work that we do is in collaboration, is in consortia. Most of them we're a member of the CSSF, both the the previous framework and the current one. And all of the contracts that we have primed on that have been have been a consortia of, of, of organizations. So we look forward, I think, as well to working with MC companies. If we have the opportunity to to be a prime or or a sub to them uh, and and forming these types of arrangements,
0: because that's always worked well for us, to be honest. The advantage um, for you as a moderate sized company, you can't have representatives in every single country, but by being part of a large organisation where you've got the skills and as you say, training and experience from different environments and theatres, it, it enables you to collaborate better and become stronger. If there was one thing that you would say then, for anybody who's just having second thoughts about whether they should join or not, what is the one reason that you would advocate for membership of
1: We're we pay all sorts of membership fees, your ISO recertification every year, your cyber essentials plus membership of ADS. MC's incredible value for money. The membership is process is straightforward they're responsive they and the fee is not high for what you get so i i would say all if i was particularly an an organization that's starting up in this sector in terms of your investment you get a lot back from membership fee
0: for mc thanks for coming on the um uh, podcast mike it's been really interesting and refreshing to hear both your insight and also the ways that uh MC is helping you and as an organisation develop. Um, what do you think the impact of IMSI is going to be um, on your organisation, and where do you see ITOs in the next sort of five, ten years? Uh, what
1: are our ambitions? We're doing fine. We've just won another contract as a prime out in North Africa and Libya. It's just that's a new country for us. We're seeing good kind of continued growth. We've just won a place back onto the new CSF framework for the UK government. That will give us another couple of years of access to some really interesting government opportunities. But overall, we enjoy providing benefits to our mission, and and that is to provide as much benefit to people who have been affected by explosive ordnance as we possibly can. And that could be through delivering capacity development programs. It could be through physically conducting operations in the field. So we've had teams going out to Mozambique conducting bulk demolitions with Norwegian People's Aid. We've had people dis- disassembling cluster munitions in Peru. So we are a bit of um, a jack of all trades when it comes to the munitions and, and explosive response sector. And, and I don't see that changing very much. And we look, I think I look forward to working with new organisations. I'd really like to do some more projects and collaborate more with the members of MC, whether that's through a piece of work that we collaborated on directly or, or maybe coming together to respond to an RFP from the UN and the UK government as a consortium of, com- of companies. I think that would be a great thing to do. And we we are, I think, a, a group of organisations that's got the ability to add tremendous amounts of value to this sector. And it's a humbling thing to be a part of I think.
0: Mike thanks very much for attending the podcast for anybody who's listening to the MC podcast and interested in the work that Artios Global do. All the contact details for both Mike's profile and his company's profile will be in the show notes so please click through and have a look if you have any requirements for demining expertise and consultancy because Artios Global is one of the leaders. Mike Kennedy thanks very much for attending today.